This is American Fashion Podcast. I'm Charles Beckwith here with Kathy Sheppis. Hi, y'all. And our guest uh, across the internet is the fashion designer Todd Snyder, who's a menswear designer. Hi, Todd. Hey there. What's going on in the world of, of Todd Snyder here in 2021? Well, a lot of fun things. I mean, uh, you know, first of all, kind of getting through 20 was kind of crazy, um, as, as it was for everyone. Um, you know, but here we are kind of positioned well for 21 and 22 and kind of, you know, seeing, you know, everybody's appetite for fashion right now kind of exploding in a good way, meaning that, um, I think everybody's kind of tired of wearing the same old, same old sweatpants and sweatshirts. So it's a pretty, pretty exciting moment. I think menswear is, uh, licking its wounds, so to speak. And I think, um, you know, the future is looking you know, fairly bright. I mean, we're not out of it by any means, but I think there's definitely uh, a light at the end of the tunnel. You've transitioned back and forth a couple times between designer and executive, and, and you've done both jobs at the same time, I think. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, I, I sold my company to American Eagle about six years ago. And um, about three years ago, I really had to, you know, really take the reins and, and help transition into, uh, you know, quite frankly, to get to profitability. That was like the big goal for us. And this is our big year that we break even. So, um, you know, for me, it's a, a long time coming, but it also really kind, kind of positions us for the future and really to expand on the brand and to, we're kind of positioned well to where we can start to expand not only retail stores, but our, our digital footprint. Uh, you started at Polo Ralph Lauren, uh, how long ago was that? Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, I've been in the industry almost 30 years. I um, started off at Ralph Lauren. It was my first job out of college and then uh, got a real paying job at J. Crew. Um, I've actually been, oddly enough, I've been at all the places that I've worked for other than myself twice. So I started off at, at Ralph, went to J. Crew, went to Old Navy for five years, went back to Ralph went back to Old Navy and then went back to J. Crew and before I started my own thing. So I've, I've been fortunate enough to work for great brands, but also great people. And it was always a goal of mine just to learn as much as I could. And um, the reason why I did that, you know, Ralph to me is the king of menswear and Mickey Drexler is the you know king of, of apparel business. So I, I really wanted to learn as much as I could before I went on on my own. And that's the big reason why. You know, I spent so much time working at those places, but it was also a big reason why I kept going back there. Over the course of that 30 years, menswear has changed dramatically and, and how menswear is sold dramatically. And you played a big part in that. Um, can you talk a little bit about where we were 30 years ago with menswear in terms of what the product was and how it was sold and marketed and what it's become now and then what seems what direction it seems to be going sure uh you know back i started my career in the business in 93 um and uh, for me back then it was really kind of centered around traditional designer you know whether it was calvin klein whether it was joseph abood whether it was uh andrew fezza who was big at the time ralph lauren obviously Armani, it was always had these big names in fashion and that was kind of the leaders of the pack and they kind of were really the only ones you saw out there. There was very few smaller um, designers that were um, 
really relevant at the time. And today, you know, we saw that kind of stay throughout most of um, up probably till 2000. And then kind of the advent of, you know, e-commerce, you really started to see an evolution of new brands out there. And I would probably say that as early as like 10 years ago, you really saw this direct consumer model come through, whether it's the Bonobuses of the world or Untuckets or, um, you know, even Faraday uh, brand and stuff. You're seeing kind of this hybrid. They're not really designer, but they're these direct consumer brands, almost category killers, you know, selling pants or selling shirts, kind of take over menswear. And you're not seeing designers as much, right? So you're not seeing, um, there's really nobody new since all of those uh, earlier um, designers were kind of leading things. So you've kind of seen a, a transition. You certainly have Tom Brown now, who's kind of very avant-garde menswear leader. And then you have Tom Ford who does menswear, but really kind of focuses on women's and accessories. Um, and then without that, you don't have a lot of us designers that are still, you know, in business or relevant. So I definitely think you're seeing a transition where the direct consumer business is, is taking the lead as far as what the appetite is for uh, apparel or it's shifting into more of a, um, you know, fat high fashion, which is more of the Gucci's and, and kind of, you know, very, very kind of forward uh, brand. So there's definitely kind of a, I think a little bit of white space, I would say right now in the, in the men's American menswear. And, and that's certainly what, what we see and what I see. And that's where we're kind of moving ourselves is we, we, and we don't sell wholesale. Like we decided, uh, I decided two years ago to vacate wholesale just because didn't feel like they were supporting us and decided to kind of do it ourselves. That's amazing because my next question was going to be, are you phasing more into direct? And I don't know if you're considering direct like your retail stores or if you look at them kind of separately. Um, so amazing that you're kind of phased out of wholesale. So what is your expansion plan? Like how are you developing your direct channel versus uh, your retail channel? Well, our direct channel, it makes up about I should say a direct channel is about a hundred percent of our business, but our digital represents about 85% of our uh, channels that we're working through. And we've really, you know, the biggest thing that I learned in the last, you know, five or 10 years is, you know, seeing the bonobuses of the world and seeing how they were selling direct to consumer. I wanted to learn how to do that. So I was feverishly as we were selling wholesale, I was equally trying to figure out how to sell to the customer directly and how to market to them, how to talk to them, how to engage with them. And we've done that through, you know, performance marketing, whether it's through, you know, search engine uh, optimization, whether it's through uh, social uh, ads, what display ads in various ways. There's a lot of different channels that you can kind of figure out how to market to the new customer because, I mean, let's face it, um, Retail's changed in the last five years, probably very quickly, where it used to be a fashion designer would do a fashion show. And then from that fashion show, you would get editors from magazines and buyers from stores. And if you landed a Bergdorf's, you could write your ticket. If you got an article in GQ, you could write your ticket. 
And I was lucky enough when I did launch that I was able to do that. I was able to get into Bergdorf's exclusively. I was in North or Neiman's exclusively, but the, the, that wasn't enough to sustain and keep my business going. I always had to build and keep going. So you have to start opening up other retailers. So you, we ended up opening up Barney's like a year or two after that, which of course upset Bergdorf's. And then if you go beyond Barney's and you go to Nordstrom, God forbid, then they get upset. And it's hard as a designer to kind of build any sort of sustainable business selling wholesale. And so I saw that very early on and I said, I better figure out the other channel, which was direct consumer. So I really, you know, obviously knowing everything I know about business and everything I know about, um, you know, design, like creating a line that would be, um, you know, widely uh, adopted and understandable and digestible by the average guy was important. And then learning how to market to them, you know, the magazines aren't what they used to be. And, and it doesn't really matter if GQ picks something up anymore. Uh, I mean, it's nice to have, but really it's all about, you know, this phone and Instagram and how people perceive you. And what it used to be when you used to look at a designer, the first thing people would say, well, what stores carry you or where can I see it? You know, what, what, you know, magazines are you in now people look at your Instagram following and say, how many people do you have following you? That's really become the new kind of gauge to see who's relevant, who's hot, who's not. And, um, it's really important to have all of, all of those things firing, whether it's your website, whether it's your Instagram, cause that's what people look at immediately. They don't look at anymore like, Oh, what stores are you in? It's not as important. Um, unfortunately. And you don't have a store reinterpreting, um, your voice and your vision and your vision, which is brilliant. So looking, um, I noticed that you're doing by appointment in your stores. Is that something that's working well and that you think you'll be doing a lot of going forward? Uh, for sure. I think that's the one thing we learned during the pandemic was to um, really uh, be scrappy and trying to figure out what is the best way to sell to a customer. And just to, you know, stay alive, we really had to think about how do we connect with the customer? And for us, you know, appointment was, was an easy way. We used to do it before, but because it became almost the way of choice, um, just because of the pandemic, it, it kind of has become more top of mind for people that they're not afraid to, to do that appointment. I think first, when people think about an appointment, they're like, Oh gosh, I'm committing to buy something or I may not know what I want. Is that going to, I think people are more comfortable with it now. So I think more and more people are willing to, you know, obviously buy things online. They're getting used to the return part of it. I think a lot of things were accelerated in this last year. How do you get men to want to shop? Well, it's, it's not any one sort of easy way. I think, um, we've tried to surround the customer with options. You know, there's some people, some guys that like to come to a store and try things on. They don't want to touch and feel it. There's some people that just shop from their phone. There's some people who like to buy from their laptop. And, and we actually added a catalog to our uh, offering that allows people, you know, obviously getting something in print is novel now. And it's an easy way um, for people to, 
to really kind of experience and discover a brand. So, but also existing customers can see it and be reminded uh, and see how things kind of are styled. Um, and it really kind of gives another option for the guy to, to, to find shopping uh, easier. And I think that's the entire goal that I've tried to do is make it easy for the guy and tear down the barriers. Um, so that's the reason why when we opened the store, we added a, a coffee shop and then we have a barber shop in there as well. And to really make it a one-stop shop for the guy, but also just to make it easy. And if a guy's going to come to a store, we want to give a reason, you know, obviously having great product is important, but then having an experience and, and kind of almost kind of creating community, uh, around it, having, you know, we get a lot of people just hang out in our store because they like the people or they like the atmosphere or they want to have a cup of coffee and just, you know, pre-pandemic, if you will, they'll, um, would hang out and, and socialize and, and really almost make an afternoon of it. For our listeners that are not familiar with your clothes, talk about, um, talk about your collection because your collection it's, it would seem so easy to me to buy five or six pieces, you know, whether that includes a pair of sneakers or whatever because of how you've merchandised it. But also the, the quality and the fabrics are incredible for the price. You know, like there's an incredible value there, it seems. So talk through um, how you see your collection and why you've made it what it is. Well, well thank you for those thoughts. And yeah, I, I, when I started off doing my own line, I, I always wanted a place to shop that I could trust and that I didn't have to go to 20 different places. You know, for me, I do all that work for you. So I travel the world, my buyers travel the world, and we're always trying to find these very unique one-of-a-kind items. So we not only sell Todd Snyder design stuff, meaning like shirts and outerwear and suits and sweatshirts, I really wanted to put together a selection of clothing that's easy for the guy to understand who wants to look their best, but doesn't want to always look like they're trying so hard to do it. I think that's always the art of, of dressing up is making yourself have this kind of casual elegance that always looks like you're of great taste, but you're not spending every moment thinking about it. Cause I know most men are very busy and it's also not the things that I think every guy thinks of first, whereas women, I think it comes to them a little bit more naturally. And you know, I've studied studied design in school, college uh, where I went to school, and and design for me was always um, just a great way, a great outlet for me to uh, express myself. Whether it's through the clothes I design, or the art I buy, or the food I like, I think there's a an aesthetic that what I'm trying to portray is this kind of ease uh, and very kind of classic sensibility, but with a twist. And I've always been inspired, you know, I'm an American designer and everybody's like, well, what is an American designer? And I think American design is like, we kind of break all the rules. And I think that's always been um, one of the best things about American fashion is, you know, you have British style, you have French style, you have uh, Italian style. And I think Americans kind of made their own style. And I think a lot of it was, you know, in, in suits and sport coats. It was always to me about the shoulder and how the shoulder looked on a guy. And I always wanted a natural shoulder. I wanted something that didn't look like you had shoulder pads, didn't look like you were trying to be something you weren't. You were always trying to um, be yourself. And, and I also love kind of juxtaposing 
uh, great vintage styling, whether it's an old military jacket or a Western shirt or an old pair of vintage jeans with kind of a haberdashery kind of sartorial suit that is American made. And it's really, I always look at fashion as this, it's almost like a great architect. It, the, all the ingredients are known, whether it's steel, whether it's concrete, whether it's uh, wood, and it's how you put it together that makes it new again. And it's the same way in food. You know, every great chef, there's not really any new meats out there and vegetables. It's like how you put it together that makes it interesting. And so I try to feed off of all these great classic American uh, styles, whether it's military, whether it's vintage uh, Western, whether it's um, even just classic suiting and twisting it up and com you know combining things different so that um, you get something new. And that's kind of how I've always seen it. And when I design, I'm always taking the best ingredients, whether it's everything in my collections, either Italian fabric, uh, Italian yarn or Japanese uh, textiles. It's made all over the world. We make stuff in Canada. We make stuff in Portugal. We make stuff in, in China. We make stuff in Japan. It's really kind of depends where we're getting the fabric. Um, and then we're putting something you know, unique together. So it's really kind of a mix of all of those things, but done in a very thoughtful way so that it's got amazing quality. I mean, the stuff you buy from us is, we have a suede uh, Dylan jacket. It's like a trucker jacket made it of Italian suede. Retails for $1,000. It's one of our best selling items, but it's high quality. We use, you know, really thoughtful uh, materials and, you know, made in Italy. Um, and, and that's been something for me, it's, it's quite fun because I get to work with some really great craftsmen and artisans who really know how to make great product. In my head, I'm thinking the workmanship that I saw <laughs> was incredible. Um, and you're not doing wholesale. So are you working with a lot of um, very small factories? Um, I mean, we work with a little bit of both. I mean, it, it, it depends. I mean, certain areas we have you know we have sizable units we're able to meet factory uh, minimums but in portugal for example it's a great place to make apparel so is italy they're used to small numbers um you know when i say small numbers i'm saying like 200 units but we have sometimes we'll we'll get into the thousands and that's where we you know choose to make um overseas um all of our knits for the most part are made in la so um, we call it our made in la uh, knit shop. So we've got polos and tees and all that's made here. Really good quality. So I've always like every single item, what I've tried to do is create this, this luxury, um, uh, almost essential, uh, version of. So like I thought about like the Chino, we use a Japanese selvage, um, for the Chino or like, what's a great jean. So we use this, we call it farm to yarn. It's made here in the U S and actually the, the yarn, um, or the cotton is actually, grown 500 miles uh, away from the actual uh, spinning mill and weaving mill. So we, we try to make a luxury version of everything. And, you know, we don't want to over, you know, overcharge for it. But, you know, our denim is probably 250. But it's it's made here in the US. It's, you know, amazing quality, and it's got a great story. And then we have a trench coat that we made, made. It's uses this beautiful Italian fabric that has just like the perfect amount of waterproofing, but it isn't 
so it's not unbreathable. And it just adds that a little bit, like a little notch over what you would typically find. Um, but we're able to to hit minimums where needed. And, and some things we make overseas that we're making thousands of units of. So it's really a balance. And all of our tailored to made here in the US as well. It's, um, it's quite awesome. And beautiful, beautiful baby seersucker fabric. Yeah, that's my favorite. So can I, can I ask one more question? Sorry, Charles. Um, about your collaborations, because and you, it looks like you've been doing them for a really long time, and some of them are really unique, I think. Um, and I just saw something really recently with um, the floral designer, Lewis. Oh, John, John Darian. Well, John Darian, no, but um, no, he's a oh, flower. Oh, the, uh, the flower flash. Yes, how fabulous. Yeah. So how yeah. did those all, you know, which ones, obviously you have great partnerships, but how how are those coming to you, like, and how are they working? Like, what are your customers responding to? Like, to go from flowers to sneakers to homeware, that's kind of like a 360. Well, it's really, again, doing unique things. Um, you know, I've been really fortunate. I think I've started off doing collaborations when I was at J. Crew, and that was really in 2007. And that was really my claim to fame there. And um, it, it definitely um, got me noticed there. And then I, when I went off on my own, I decided to, to really use that strategy and, and started working with Champion was my first collaboration on my own. But when I was at J. Crew, I, I did uh, Red Wing and Jack Purcell and Timex and all that. And it was an easy way I learned how to connect with a customer without spending a ton of money on marketing. It was a, it was a way because everybody knows who Timex is, everybody knows who uh, you know Champion is. They don't know who I am, so it's an easy entry point, and it also kind of gives the customer something unique that you can't get anywhere else. So I knew that there was um, as like my secret weapon as I started. I knew having Champion, and I knew this was in you know 2012. I started working with them. And I knew that they were going to be popular. I knew that it was only a matter of time. They were, you know, always everybody knew who they were, but they were always kind of like the, the, um, this college sweatshirt that everybody loved, but they weren't necessarily in the fashion, uh, realm and now they are, but it was, I knew that that were, they were going to get there. So I was lucky enough to be able to work with them. I worked with this guy, um, Ned Monroe, who's their, creative director and and we hit it off and and I owe him a lot. I mean, that really put a stake in the ground for me to really do what I'm doing now. It, it definitely, you know, was a game changer and it allowed me to show that I could do what I could do with a big brand like that. And, and a lot of it, it's a lot of trust that they're giving you. Um, and in fact, that actually was a big reason why I was able to work with L.L. Bean because they saw what I did with Champion and they loved, you know, because there's always this respect that you've got to you know, pay towards a brand because they don't want you, you know, going outside of kind of what their brand ethos is. And, and Ella Bean was a, probably the best expression, which we launched uh, last year, last fall, and it blew out in like a week. Like we had no idea how big it was going to be. And it just, it just was incredible. So collaborations have been kind of my secret of success, even though it, everybody knows about them, but it really allows me to 
in a, in a lot of ways, work with other creatives and really get to know their process and kind of, for me, selfishly, I like it because I understand, you know, how other people work and what gets them motivated and what gets them, um, you know, what, what are their inspirations? So it's, it's kind of a neat way to work with other artists, so to speak, to like see, um, what get, you know, gets them ticking and gets them going. Creatives inspiring each other. Powerful. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, award season in Hollywood right now, and the Oscars were last weekend. Uh, did did you watch? Yeah, I did. I, I, um, I of course, I always like watching the pre, <laughs> the pre shows because you kind of see what everybody wears. It was really neat to see a lot of, um, you know, not just the designers, but it was neat to see a lot of the stylists that are the ones kind of connecting the dots between um, designers and and you know, the, the actors. And for me, that was super exciting because I, I know quite a few of them. Um, and uh, they're definitely a, a huge gateway for us to kind of get discovered by, you know, various um, celebrities. It, it's one of those things that, you know, celebrities, and some are really good at fashion, some like doing fashion on their own, but it's definitely, you know, you never see anybody out there shopping it's they're usually doing it through somebody else so i think i think a lot of celebs have a tough time connecting to fashion more so than they're not shopping themselves because i mean they're going to get mobbed if they go to a, a barney's well, actually barney's a little but they go to a sack so they go to any store there's always going to be you know photographed and i think that's a little challenging so they require a lot of these um stylists to kind of connect the dots for them and and to do all that kind of pulling and you know fitting and all that there's a lot of work that goes behind it so it was really neat this year to, they gave a lot of i think airplay to that which was kind of neat are there style icons that you think of when when you were working on designing do you kind of have a figure in mind of of of, of that's that's the guy i designed suits for yeah for me it's always been a combination of of like old hollywood young hollywood i have i've always been inspired by you know classic films um Elaine Delon is is one for me that I just felt that he for he kind of embodied a uh, great style. You know, he's he's the one that was in the original. Um, I think it was uh, Blue Moon or no wait, Noon. Uh, I can't remember Noon Moon or something. Anyway, the, the original talent, Mister Ripley, um, and he had the coolest style. He was a French guy that uh, just was cool. And, you know, Paul Newman's another one that just, you know, he could be in a t-shirt and look cool as hell. He could be in a suit and look amazing. I, I think I always like to think about those characters. And then I, you know, I think about them in different settings, whether it's, you know, in Capri or in, in South of France or in London or, you know, in Tokyo or in Scotland, I always think about who that guy is and what he would wear. Um, in that kind of setting. And I think that's always, for me, it's an interesting kind of a uh, little bit of a problem solving because what you would wear in, you know, Palm Springs would be completely different than what you'd wear here in New York City. So I always kind of like to think of the character in a different setting. And that's usually how I start the design process and thinking about what the car is he driving? What the, is the watch? What is the you know, sunglasses, what is the suit and the overcoat? And I think about all the pieces and then I start to create the wardrobe based on kind of what that character is doing and which 
location. I want to ask you about um, Instagram um, and how how are you learning more and more about your customers through Instagram? You said before, obviously, people are looking to get out of their sweats, but are you? Is there anything else that you're learning in the last year or very recently from a behavior standpoint or things that are changing that have surprised you? Um, I mean, definitely in the last year, um, we've never sold more sweatpants and sweatshirts ever. I mean, I think um, we've been in, and this is actually ends up being, this is our 10th year in business. And um, so we're having our big 10 year celebration, but we probably have sold more of their champion fleece and hoodies and sweatshirts than we ever have. It's, it's amazing. And joggers. Joggers is like our number one item right now because it's like the go-to pant for men right now. Um, but I think, I think in general, I just think, you know, men, men are definitely coming out of their shell. I, you know, when I got into fashion 20, 30 years ago, fashion was always kind of a four letter word to a guy. And, and definitely I think the new generation, the millennials that are coming up are definitely a lot more uh, into clothes. And, and I don't think, you know, there used to be, you know, a lot of people used to be very homophobic that if you were into fashion, oh, that means you're gay. And I think now it's being a lot more accept, accepted in general. And I don't think people think of those kind of, um, you know, those kind of, stigmas anymore or as much as they used to, I should say. Um, but it's definitely becoming a lot more free. Um, and I think guys are willing to experiment in different things. And especially I think right now what's happening is you're seeing this kind of street culture and then kind of this younger sensibility kind of coming into menswear, which is really exciting. You know, you're seeing guys mix things up, whether it's a great pair of, uh, athletic, you know, sneaker trainers, um, English call them trainers. I think we call them sneakers, but uh, mix with like an overcoat or mix, you know, with a, even a pair of um, dress pants. And but the proportions are different. You know, the dress pant might be a little bit more slouchy. Um, and it's neat to kind of see and that's a lot of that's coming from the street and that's coming from this younger spirit. And so it's kind of neat to see that. And I think that's the one thing I've really enjoyed the last, you know, probably two years, especially seeing that kind of street culture kind of move more in. It used to be athleisure, I think it was called like three or four years ago, but now it's evolved into, you know, this blending of sartorial notes with that kind of more of that street style. So you mentioned before movies as far as getting inspired. And I I think you're as you thought about your customer, you imagine them in different places, but I'm assuming when you could travel, you travel to a lot of different places. <laughs> but now, yeah. um, so where are you getting inspired now? And now that things are starting to open up, what are you finding good sources of inspiration? Well, I mean, the last year has been fun <laughs> as far as inspiration. I've been living a lot on Pinterest. Pinterest for me has always been kind of my hub of of information um instagram for sure as we mentioned before is where i get a lot of my inspiration just seeing what people are doing um but it's definitely gone a bit more you know cinema is definitely i think the the things that still inspires me the most because it kind of puts you in a setting you can kind of feel the energy you can kind of almost you know put yourself in as a as a character so i always like you know watching old film or even new film and just kind of 
reimagining what it would be like to be in that setting that generally gets me into it. And then Pinterest, because Pinterest just is a great source for inspiration that I'm always looking for, you know, great photography or, you know, great, you know, style and trying to figure out how to reinterpret that. So that's kind of generally where I get it. And then, you know, books, of course, are always a great source. So I've got a library of probably a couple thousand books that I'm always rediscovering, um, because I always forget, you know, I, I haven't gone through every single one in, um, quite yet, but that's always been a big source for me. What is your business focus going to be in the next year, do you think? What, what are your big challenges right now? You know, our big challenges right now, we, I mean, obviously we're still in the pandemic and COVID is still, you know, plagued this world. So um, sourcing is still a challenge, you know, not everybody... You know, you've been hearing the numbers coming out of India and it's just, it's, it's just very sad and, you know, it, it, it's, we're not out of this. And I think, um, we're a global economy for sure. And we're being affected by all these things. So that, that's my biggest, that's the thing that keeps me up at night is, you know, making sure that, um, you know, everybody's safe, but also that we're able to kind of service our business. It's, it's a challenge because you don't, you don't want to put anyone at risk, but at the same time, you're, you're kind of, um, you know, you're trying to find the right places to, to make things. And it's definitely a challenge. I mean, we make a lot of stuff in Italy and Italy is, you know, still going through a lot, but you know, the, the factories and the mills that we work with have, have put in a lot of protocols to, you know, you know, making sure that their staff is healthy and safe and that they're, you know, almost in a bubble on their own. A lot of our factories kind of have their own bubbles that they're, they've created just to make sure that they're, you know, if one person gets sick, you know, it, it takes out a, a whole lot of them. So, um, I think everybody's learning the new, new norm as everyone's saying, but it's definitely, we're not done. And that's probably the one thing. I think the other thing is just, you know, taking advantage of the situation, meaning like our business is strong. And I think there's some, uh, definitely, you know, definite, uh, headwinds, but not as bad as they used to be. Um, and just making sure that we're coming out of this, you know, probably in the next six to 12 months in the, in the right way that we're not having too much inventory or not enough inventory. That's kind of always the, always the biggest problem in business is either you have too much or too little. Let's try to figure out where you need to be. It would be great if the problem would be to have just enough. <laughs> yeah, it never, never works. I mean, that's the one thing I learned from Mickey was, uh, you know, you'll, you'll never get it right. It's, uh, it's it, usually if you don't have enough, you know, you're missing opportunity. If you have too much, you're putting everything on sale and you start to kill your momentum. So it's definitely a double-edged sword. So as you mentioned, Mickey, again, do you think of yourself as a strong merchant? Um, I think of myself, I mean, no, I think of myself as a creator. I mean, I, I've hired an amazing team around me. Um, Alejandro, who runs our, uh, he's our chief uh, product officer. So he oversees all of merchandising and kind of everything that has to do with the, the customer and our product. So I'm designing it all with the design team and, and working with the marketing team to kind of build the narrative and build the experience. And then he 
is responsible for buying and, and making sure we have enough inventory and making sure we have the, enough of the right things and making sure that we're trend right and all that. So it's a good partnership. And that's the one thing I learned from Mickey was to, to have great people around me. I mean, the reason why Mickey was so good, I mean, not only is he a genius, but he surrounds himself with amazing people. And that, that was truly what his genius is and, and was, is that he worked with the best. And, you know, whether it was Jenna, um, who was amazing, or, you know, or, you know, Tracy Gardner, who was the head of merchandising at the time, and they both were equally as good. You couldn't do one without the other, truly. You couldn't do one without the other. And I know that. It's like, I, I know I can't be a great merchant. I mean, I've studied 30 years and I've been in, you know, designing for 30 years. Doesn't mean I'm a great, you know, merchant. And merchants, it's a tough job. You got to know what to pick and how many and kind of know the kind of, inventory levels and kind of as they say open to buy and and making sure that to your point you've got just enough uh, to make a difference as new york is reopening uh and we have so many closed stores as in the, there's nothing in the store they boarded it up um what do you think it's gonna look like in a couple of months as new york reopens what, what do you think is going to happen to retail i mean that's a that is a really good question because I, I do think, I mean, I'm knock on wood, one of the lucky ones that was able, my online business was as strong as it was uh, or is. Um, stores, you know, we were shut down for four months. Um, our landlord didn't give us a break on rent. Um, we were, uh, one landlord did, I should say. We had a, our liquor store, which is down in Tribeca. They, she gave us a break, which was amazing. She's She's a, you know, a person who has like three or four different properties and she gave us a, a break, which was amazing because that definitely helped us. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, you know, probably were 50, 40% of what we were year prior to that. You know, now we're just starting to get back on our feet. And I think, believe it or not, I actually think we're going to comp double LY. I mean, two years ago when, you know, pre-pandemic, we're, we're comping April, which was, that's a first. So there's a good sign there. But typically, I think we've been, since we reopened in July, we were running about, you know, 40 to 50% of what we were, we were doing in a normal year. So I was lucky because I had a really strong digital business and that kept us afloat. Had I not had that, I probably would have been out of business just because, it was that bad where you can't pay your bills and a lot of people were less fortunate. And I think, you know, I think Manhattan real estate has always been expensive, but it was really expensive pre pandemic. If, if anything, this is maybe righted that some of those rates, however, a lot of people are, you know, savings are gone. They've lost everything. It's going to be hard for retail to, to come back. It's same thing with, with restaurants. You know, I was speaking to a friend of mine who owns a restaurant here in the city, you know, you know, he's James Beard winner, all that. And he's like, you know, I'm at my limit. He's like, he's spent everything he's had to keep this, you know, his business afloat. But, and it, I think a lot of people have had even worse than that. And I think it's going to take some time to get that back up and people that had shut down are probably not going to come back. And then, but, but because the rents are going to be so low, you're going to see some new opportunities for people to, to maybe start, um, the ones that weren't so heavily, you know, 
damaged by this. So it's going to be, there's definitely going to be new people sprouting. There's going to be some of the, the old guards still there, you know, obviously the Ralph Lauren's and whatnot are, you know, not really affected too much by this, but I think the smaller designers definitely were, you know, really hurt by this. Just as you yeah. mentioned restaurants and your friend having a restaurant, it, it, I keep thinking that, I mean, a lot of people have built really great outdoor spaces, you know, and have created wonderful environments. So when it goes back to closer to 80% capacity, let's say, that means they can increase their capacity by that much, you know, because now they have the outdoor space. Do you think that will help a lot of them to come back? Well, it's funny because we had the same conversation. Um, he said, here's the part of the problem is he's having a hell of a time getting staff. Staff. He's like, people don't want to work right now. He's like, people can get, make more money or make enough money to not work and get unemployment. So we're in a little bit of a dilemma right now where because there are, there are some kind of, you know, subsidations of you know of unemployment that it's right now it's not balanced so a lot of people aren't as motivated to go to work so they're kind of like ah you know what i you know i'd rather just not work and do my own thing for a bit so i think people are kind of writing this but he's saying it's really challenging for him to hire staff he's like even if i could open this doors tomorrow i wouldn't have enough people to run the place he's like a half staff with people and he can't find people I just read this, too, in the Times, I think, and here you are saying it. Wow. It's true. I mean, I literally just spoke to him Friday night, and I said, you know, because he has, you know, beautiful outdoor space, like you said, and I said, you know, it wouldn't it, is this going to be awesome when this whole thing opens? He goes, problem is, and he's he's talked to a lot of, uh, um, you know, people in, in government, and he said, yeah, it's it's a problem right now because people aren't willing to go back to work, There's and there's not enough people necessarily living in New York. So we're in a little bit of a, it's going to be a while. I think it's going to be some time. Um, I, we were fortunate to, to reopen and, and I would hate to be in the, in the food business in New York city. It just, they got decimated from this. I mean, we, we definitely got hurt, but they got really hurt. You can't, you can't sell. I mean, it's hard to sell, uh, food online and, you know, obviously delivery works, but you know, when half the population's left the city that used to order from you and you have to pivot and there just wasn't enough, there's not enough demand for, for them to really keep things up. Plus half of their half, probably three quarters of their revenue comes from alcohol sales and, and nobody's buying alcohol. They're, you know, just ordering the food. So it's, it's tough to, it's tough for them. I mean, not to get all in a, yeah, we'll get positive now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You mentioned collaboration a couple of times, and um, you've been executive and designer, and, and you've run big teams. What's your approach to having a collaborative environment for design? How do you set things up so that the team can be creative and it isn't always coming to you for everything? Well, it's it's kind of goes back to the thing I said to you about Mickey. It's hiring great people. Um, I've you know, for the longest time, you know, I've been in the industry for quite some time and met some really good people. So I've always had a tendency to, to adopt the people that I really like working with, of course. I mean, that sounds, sounds simple, right? But um, I like to create an environment that people enjoy, um, that they feel 
uh, inspired. And I always say the one, one thing to my team is like, I want, I want to, you know, to be inspired by you as much as I want to inspire you. You know, I, I think it, it's a two way street. So a lot of times when I hire people, I think about them as like, what am I going to get from this as well? Because there's definitely, there's an energy that goes back and forth between, you know, both parties that it's a critical moment. And, you know, whether it's a, you know, a great merchant or a great, you know, store salesperson or a great designer or someone in marketing, there's always amazing ideas out there that um, really help inform me and give me new uh, inspiration. And I think it's important to inspire, um, but it's also important to get inspiration. And I think that's, that's how I have always looked at design. And like I said, I was always fortunate to be able to work with you know, Mickey, for example, who was, he just fed off creativity and, and he's great, great taste. I mean, if you ever seen his homes, um, he's just got an amazing taste when it comes to interiors as well. He just really pays attention to all that stuff. Todd, what should your customers know about your brand that, that they should expect when they come to your stores? Well, I think, I've always said this and it's, I mean, obviously it's self-serving, but it, like, if you want to be the best dressed man, come to us. And, and what I mean by that is like, I take a lot of the work out of it for, for our customers. So like I said before, I, you know, I, I shop the world, I study fashion, I am in the weeds every day and it's what inspires me. It's what gets me going. And it, and I kind of use the analogy of being a great chef and, you know, you go to a restaurant for a reason because they have great food and you don't know the recipe that they're doing, but they've, they've done all the research for you. They've done all the work, you know, they know where to get the freshest vegetables and the best meats and the best cuts of everything. And it's kind of the same way in fashion is like knowing where to go shop for, you know, great, you know, tweeds or knowing where to get something that is, looks like a tweed, but it, it's soft and supple and it's not itchy. And like how do you blend kind of those that luxury in with a casual style? And I think that's that's a hard thing to do. And um, you know, because I've spent so much time in the industry and you know, when I was a kid in young in the industry, I used to I, I, I taught myself how to sew. I used to be a tailor assistant back in the day and um, I wanted to learn everything about the garment because it was important for me, not only just to make it look good, but it had to fit well. And it's, it's important how, it's amazing how many other people screw that up as far as knowing how something is made. And, and my dad was an engineer so, and my mother was an artist. So I always had this great blend of art meets kind of functionality. And for me, that's super important. So when you're coming to my store or shopping online, knowing that I've done all that research and, and you're getting a, a quality piece that is, you know, either using an amazing fabric from Italy or, you know, it's made in Portugal by this amazing tailor or, you know, a sweater. We started doing this recycled cashmere out of Italy. That's just amazing. And, you know, it's not cheap, but at the same time, it's, it's this luxury, element that you're paying for something that has great value, but it also, you know, is, is sustainable, which is really great. And I think, you know, I think that's going to be kind of, um, table stakes going forward. I think the whole sustainability, it's something we're, we're moving towards. Um, it's not easy because there's not a lot of people, uh, factories that 
are all sustainable. And so we're trying to navigate that. And it's, it's definitely something that's important. And it's a big reason why we moved to this farm to yarn denim, which is made at a mill called Vidalia Mills in Louisiana. They bought the old cone, made in USA cone selvage looms. And they're making denim again here in the United States, the old fashioned way. And it's farm to yarn, which is amazing. And it's, um, you know, it's a three, two fifty, three hundred dollar jean, but it's like I said, it's made here, and it's not, you can't. There's not a lot of people who make denim here anymore, and I think they're the only ones that make salvage. Love that. When are you doing women's? <laughs> we'll see. Um, who knows? So we're definitely. Um, you'll see more women in our ad campaign, and because uh, I do think there's definitely a a lot of cross styling that's happening out there a lot of uh i love a, a woman in a in a man's overcoat with just the right proportions and i definitely think you're seeing kind of a blend now of kind of you know the girls still in from the guys a bit and um a lot more things i think masculinity is is definitely kind of made its way over to the ladies now which is kind of cool meaning like seeing some of that trousers and things that you're starting to see uh, women wanting to wear, but with the right proportion. So we'll see. It's definitely something we're experimenting with. Maybe you just start with a pant that's cut for her, but looks like men's and the sneakers. And the sneakers, right? I mean, the sneaker thing, I mean, it's obviously been happening for the last three or four years, but it, it's it's crazy how sexy and cool it is to see a, a girl like who's you know, kind of styled like a normal traditional woman, but then has a cool pair of sneakers and you're just like, oh, that's, it's just the, it's almost the new, you know, heel is like, what is the sneaker? It's, it's crazy. Yeah. I think, I think it will. I mean, I, yeah, exactly. No, it's, it's neat to see. I think that's one of the cooler trends that's been happening in the last two to three years is seeing kind of that Athleisure kind of evolved into this, this street aesthetic, and then now you're seeing women kind of taking the lead in it, which is really neat. And they're kind of borrowing from the boys, but they're making it look kind of sexy and cool at the same time. Todd, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with My us. My pleasure. Today. No, was, yeah, thank you both. listening to American Fashion Podcast. AmericanFashionPodcast.com is our website. You can access over 250 previous episodes by subscribing to our archive on the website. There is also a Be a Guest form on the site where you can reach out to us about being a guest on the show. On Twitter, we're at AFPOD, and on Instagram, we're at American Fashion Show. If you particularly like an episode, please give us a shout out and tag us on social media. Our voicemail line is 646-979-8709, or you can email info at AmericanFashionPodcast.com. But again, if you want to be a guest on the show, please use the Be a Guest form on the website. American Fashion Podcast is produced by Mouth Media Network, audio for business. If your company or organization needs a podcast, reach out to a Mouth Media Network 
podcasts at mouthmedianetwork.com. This and all other episodes are copyrighted by Mouth Media Network Incorporated, all rights reserved. Subsist, friends. Keep making things beautiful. Remain in force. And we'll talk to you again next week.